such an interesting program, and kind of jealous. But anyway, I uh, just want to mention one thing about, uh, you know, we're finished with organ donation, more or less, so hopefully you have a, a fairly good understanding of at least what the halachic issues are. Uh, I just want to mention one final thing that's been obvious in Pashat, and I've said it many, many times, and you know this anyway, uh, but it's important to, to reiterate it, uh, how Judaism is very much against cremation. And uh, this is a real, real problem today because cremation has become enormously popular uh, you know, among Jews who are not keeping halacha. And part of why it's enormously popular is it is very cheap. It costs a lot of money to die. Uh, <laughs> a, uh, you know, so don't do it. <laughs> Uh, you know, a, a, you know, even a very, you know, a Jewish funeral is supposed to be very simple. Not just a plain coffin, a plain pine box. But a, a typical Jewish funeral outside of Israel, Israel is a little easier, uh, will cost you, will cost the family at least $10,000 and possibly even more. Uh, a cremation, on the other hand, can be as little as $1,000. So because of this, unfortunately, money drives a lot of things. So uh, people go with cremation. And uh, often you may have, I hope you don't face this, but no, parents may make you swear to them uh, their last moments that you will cremate them. And uh, you don't want to upset a parent, so sometimes you'll make, you know, yeah, mom, I'll do it. But I just want to tell you, halakhically, even if you literally swore on God's name, on a Sefer Torah, that you will ensure cremation, the halakha actually is, do not obey that oath if you can, meaning to say, Rest assured that uh, a parent's neshama is going to be very, very happy if you don't carry out. The reason I say this is people obviously have a tremendous amount of guilt. If this was the last thing a person promised their parents, they're going to be racked with tremendous guilt not to carry it out. But you need to understand that the neshama desires that the body be buried, and that gives the neshama repose, and that allows it to go to Ganeiden, of, of anxiety and the like. So do not feel that you're kind of not listening to the last wish of your parent. You have to be mitzgaberet. You have to kind of overcome that feeling and do what is right because it is what the parent or whoever it is actually wants at this particular point. Now, I understand the reality of life that often if you come from a non-religious family, uh, you're not the only one in charge. If, you know, if God forbid you, you, you lose a relative, there may be all sorts of other people involved, like it might be a spouse, stepmother, it might be another sibling. So you do what you can. I mean, think what you, you, you do what you can and you don't do what you can't. So, I mean, I understand that not every situation you will have control over, but to the degree that you have control, do not worry about any promises that, that were made. According to halacha, they are not binding at all, and the neshama would much prefer a Jewish burial. That's, uh, again, I, uh, that's actually very obvious, but I, I wanted to make the point because unfortunately it does, it does come up. People will say, well, I promise, this was the last promise I made, etc. Don't worry about it. Uh, any oath to violate the Torah is not a valid oath. It does not have any status uh, whatsoever. So that's one thing about uh, cremation. Now there's an interesting, Shaila, you know, I, I don't know if you've noticed, I don't know if the, uh, you go to cemeteries in Yerushalayim as part of your uh, education, but uh, the big, uh, there are a few cemeteries in Yerushalayim, but the biggest one is Har HaMenuchos. The oldest one is Harazesim, the Mount of Olives. That's an ancient, ancient cemetery. But
but now uh, the burials are in Har HaMenuchos, which is in Harnof, or near Harnof. And if you ever drive by, you will see something that looks like a bunch of parking garages. And those are actually, they now bury, because there's a shortage of space on ground level, they now bury people in structures that are similar to garages. In other words, one on top, right? So you might have somebody who's buried on the seventh floor, meaning there are bodies you know, under, etc. And uh, that raises some very, very interesting halachic issues because normally burial has to be in the ground and not above the ground. Uh, the Chevra Kadisha of Yerushalayim relies on a psak that since the buildings are permanent structures affixed to the ground, so even if it's the hundredth story, it's treated as a ground burial. But some people uh, are strict on this and they want to be buried in the ground, but that costs you money. Uh, the thing is that in Eretz Yisrael, one of the benefits of living here is you get a free burial. Really? Meaning when you die, you do get a free Everyone. burial. All Jews? Or all, all Jews, no, no, well, all Jews, Jews. But the problem is the free burial doesn't guarantee you a particular place, so you'll just get something in the parking garage. If you want to be buried in the ground, you have to pay a premium for that. That may be as high as $20,000. $20, so uh, there are certain uh, economic factors in Jewish burial that, that have to be you know, addressed in various ways. So you if, if you go with the parking garage, uh, you get a free one. How do you visit the grave? Oh, no, because there are elevators. Yeah, the elevator. And you kind of, the elevator opens up, and you walk into a, a floor, and there'll be like, you know, in every floor, there'll be like, Grass? Six, six graves, one up, uh, etc. On each, you know, on each of the four walls, there'll be like twenty-four graves, or you know, even more than that. And but it's in the ground, or it's like no, no, it's not in the ground. It's like in the wall. Imagine, imagine you had a wall here, right? Isn't like the Jewish burial like you to No, that's correct. So they have earth. They have earth in every. Yeah, they have earth in every box, every layer. So imagine that you have like a, it's like a catacomb. You have kind of a crypt, right? And there'll be a plate. Uh, at each drawer, it's like almost like a drawer that'll say the name. And, and that's like the tombstone. Yeah, that's the tombstone. It's just a little plate. So that's what they do. Now, Baruch Hashem, I understand that they, 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 they did create some subterranean caverns, which has added up to a million extra graves. So <laughs> that will address some of the shortage. But again, Baruch Hashem will have a Tchiyat Hamesim soon. And, uh, you know, so this will not be a problem anymore. But in the immediate short term, uh, it's still an issue, yeah. So, if somebody is cremated, I guess this is more yeah. severe. Yeah, yeah. So this is a very this is a very severe problem. Uh, in the classical makorots, classical sources, if a person is cremated uh, because he is, seems to be making a statement that they deny resurrection of the body, there will not be resurrection of the dead for a cremated person. Now, obviously, we're not talking about a Holocaust victim. Of course not. We're not talking about a burn victim. That's not what we're talking about. But a person who makes a decision to intentionally be cremated is treated as a person who denies resurrection of the dead. And because they deny resurrection of the dead, it will not be resurrected. However, if a person made a decision because they were ignorant of the Torah's teachings and they were not exposed to them, that's a different situation. So at that point, they're not fully responsible uh, for their for their actions. Yeah. I absolutely do, but I, I don't remember them off the top of my head. But I, I can I can very definitely give you information. 
Um, well, well, there's an organization, so the National Association of Hevra Kaddishas. Hevra Kaddisha means burial societies. And the head of it is a Rabbi Elchanan Zon. Zon is Z-O-H-N. So if you Google National Association of Hevra Kaddisha or Rabbi Zon, Z-O-H-N, uh, you will get that information. And he's been very, very helpful to families uh, that have to navigate through this. Uh, and you know, often they have literature and videos that kind of explain why cremation is not, not good. And uh, you know they have various uh, ways of helping people uh, through this. So that's, uh, that's the person to, uh, to contact. Okay, so uh, some, something to be aware of. As I say, because cremation, unfortunately, is very, very popular today. And uh, therefore, we have to, as Jews, we have to know that we are against it. Okay, so there's an, there's an ideal, and then there's less than ideal. The ideal burial is that both a man and a woman are in burial shrouds. Those are the white, called tachrichim. They're not buried naked, and they've been washed uh, before. But they are buried in the ground without a coffin. So their uh, body is directly in the dirt, and when their body decomposes, it decomposes into the soil itself. That is the ideal burial, and that is how burials are done uh, in Israel. However, in the United States, there is a legal problem, not a halachic problem. Legally, it is against the law in many states to bury a body that's not in a coffin in the ground. There's a fear of disease, of germs, you know, because the body might have a disease or whatever it is. It may contaminate the water, you know, things could happen. So as a result, it is legally required in many states that, uh, that bodies be in coffins. So that's not optimal, but if you have to do it, you have to do it. So what they do is they do, they do two things in Jewish religious funerals. Number one, they put some dirt in the coffin itself so that the body decomposes into the coffin. And number two, they sometimes put a hole in the coffin. So at least that it's, so the dirt in the coffin is connected to the dirt of the natural ground. But, I, I, but optimally, again, if you've been to a funeral here in Yushalayim, uh, you will see that there literally is no coffin. Uh, the body is carried on a stretcher. So during the eulogies, you see a body uh, in a stretcher, not in a coffin. I mean, covered, covered up, covered up with a talus. Uh, or if it's a woman, just a burial shroud. Uh, the face is not exposed, uh, obviously. And uh, then they, they carry the body on the stretcher and they lower the body and you know, the body is buried directly there. Yeah? If If it's necessary, uh, you know, yes. I mean, uh, if there is a health hazard, a, a, a clear and present danger to other people, uh, then we do take whatever precautions are necessary. But most of the time, it's, it's not that situation, so uh, uh, they do it. In fact, uh, tahara, you know, tahara is a very big mitzvah. Uh, tahara is the, is the ritual bathing and cleaning of the body before it's buried. I don't know if you've, you've heard of a, it's called tahara purification. Uh, for some of the great tzaddikim, they actually immerse the dead body in a mikvah 
not the mikvah that uh, live people use, but you know, a special mikvah. Uh, most people do not have uh, immersion in a mikvah, but they are, you know, the chevra kadisha, men for men, women for women. They clean the body, they comb the hair, they, sh- uh, they, they, they treat it very lovingly. It's like preparing a child to be born to the higher level of connection with Hashem in, in Olam Abba. We prepare the body in a very, very loving way. And uh, that's a very, very, very great mitzvah. In many places, to be in the Hebra Kadisha, you have to be uh, very righteous. And uh, like one of the things to think about the Alter Rebbe, uh, one of the things that Chabad boasts about is he was a member of the Hebra Kadisha at the age of 13. And that's, uh, again, you may not, you know, you may, if you don't know, you may, they may not impress you in particular, but that was considered to be like a very, very, very unusual honor because only the greatest tzaddikim were on Hebra Kadisha. Yeah. Okay. Um, so my father's on that Hebra Kadisha thing, and I know that every year they have a fast, like a... The whole, everyone who's in, who does that job fasts mm-hmm. one day. Why do they fast? Well, they fast because, um, number one, uh, their, whole, their whole job is to be connected with death and destruction. And they're actually fasting because they're praying to Hashem that they should be out of work, that Hashem should abolish death. Uh, in fact, the day that they often choose is the seventh of Adar, uh-huh which is the day that Moshe Rabbeinu was born, but also the day that he died, uh, because Moshe Rabbeinu was buried by God. The Hebra Kedisha didn't do any work <laughs> that day. So they're saying, just as you know, we didn't work that day, may we never have any further work in the future. Some, instead of fasting, some actually make a party on the Sabbath. They make a su'uda to celebrate, uh, not to celebrate the work they do, but to, but to celebrate the mitzvah and the chesed that was done and then pray to Hashem that uh, we should be out of work. Okay, that's called, again, what does Hebra Kedisha mean? It's Aramaic. Hebra Kedisha means the holy group. Hebra is a group of people. Kadisha is holy, because it was a very, very holy uh, position. So you may have, you know, uh, and especially in small towns, you know, in a place like, you know, Brooklyn or Muncie, you know, you're not gonna get on the Hebra Kedisha unless you're there for 50 years or whatever. But you know, if you're in a small town, it could very well be that you will be asked to be on the Chavar Kedisha because there aren't that many volunteers. And it's a great, great mitzvah if you're able to do it. But again, uh, single women generally cannot be in the Chavar Kedisha because if a woman is halachically a nida, she does not come in contact with dead bodies. And uh, if once a woman had her period, until she goes to the mikvah, which she will not do until she's married, she's halachically anita. So essentially, uh, the Hebrew Kedisha work is not available for a, uh, for a single woman. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. In fact, it, it goes by, an, it's not really stuck, it's called something else. It's called gemilos chesed. There is a technical difference. Tzedakah is a monetary thing. I give money, I give tzedakah. I give services that I would charge for, that's going to be tzedakah. But Gemilus chesed is really when you give your time as an act of kindness. So Gemilus chesed is actually greater than tzedakah because tzedakah is with your money and your possessions and Gemilus chesed is with your time. And not only that, in your physical effort, 
But it's not only called regular gemilas chesed, but it's called gemilas chesed shel emes, kindness of truth, because you're not going to get any payment back. If I do you a favor, I might be thinking you're going to pay me back. But if I do something for the dead, they're not going to give anything back to me. So that's a true motivation of kindness. So gemilas chasadim shel emes the uh, commission of loving kindness for truth. It's often abbreviated. Gimel Ches Shin Aleph. So it'll say, Chevra Kadisha Gimel Ches Shin Aleph. The Holy Assembly, in fact the full name is, the Holy Assembly of those who do kindness uh, of truth. No, it does not. It's, it's a tremendous mitzvah, but it does not exempt you. Okay, so that's the union of, of Hebra Kedisha. Now, obviously, uh, not everybody can emotionally do this work. It, you know, it's, it's difficult uh, to work with dead bodies. Not everyone uh, is able, but uh, it's a great mitzvah. And people often comment, you know, people often comment that there may be a certain radiance to a person who is righteous. Uh, but also, unfortunately, you have other situations too. People die of diseases, and they can be disfigured. So you know, you know it's a, it's emotionally a difficult, a difficult job. And of course, uh, you're also uh, when you sign up, you're you know you have to be on call any time. It may be three o'clock in the morning. It may be you know maybe uh, all sorts of times. Yes, yeah, Aleph. Everything's Aleph. Yeah, because it's Aramaic. It's, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, well, yes, yes. In Yerushalayim, in Yerushalayim, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a job. It's not a volunteer thing. In Yerushalayim, uh, the, the um, organizations have chevra kadishas. That's their job. Uh, in the United States, it tends not to be a job. In the United States, it tends to be a volunteer position. So in Yerushalayim, uh, you can't, uh, you know, is, is a position. Yeah. Okay, so all all gemilas chesed is higher than stucca, mm-hmm. all. But within gemilas chesed, this is the highest of the high. Yeah, yeah. The statement that I made that gemilas chesed is greater than stucca that applies to all gemilas chesed. I mean, you understand that if I because uh, if somebody comes to me and they say they need food, and I give them money to buy food, that's stucca. If I actually invite them to my house to sit down for a meal with me, that's Gemilas Chesed. And you can see that's a much higher form because I'm taking time for them, I'm giving them companionship, right? So that's Chesed is higher than Stuck. But it doesn't exempt you from giving Stuck. Yeah. Um, so, like, back to what you were saying before about, like, how, like, the Jewish burial. Um, so, like, when you were saying that are we to honor, like, okay, for, like, we're supposed to bury Jewish bodies basically like, naked other than... The, well, they were very the shroud, yeah. Yeah. yeah, correct. So, like, if, God forbid, like, someone, like a family member says to you, like, I want to be, like, I feel like this happens a lot, I want to be buried in this shirt. Yep. Are you so, like, 
that's obviously different from cremation, but are you supposed to say no? Like, well, you, you can say you can say yes, but then disregard it. <laughs> yeah. In fact, let me tell you a little story about this. This is a very, very cute story, but it's a powerful story. Uh, I don't know if anyone here is from Toronto, uh, but uh, there's a very, very charitable philanthropic family in Toronto, the Reichman family. They give a lot of money to many, many institutions of Torah and religion. So uh, when the patriarch of the family died around 15 years ago, he left instructions in a will that he wanted to be buried. He was a, a religious person. He wanted to be buried in his favorite black socks. Now that doesn't make sense. We don't do that. They didn't understand why, the son, but the sons said this is what their father requested. So they went to the Hebra Kadisha and they said, listen, our father, who's a religious man and he's a charitable man, he, his last request was he wanted to be buried in these black socks. Will you accommodate the request? The Hebra Kadisha said, no. There are no changes. Uh, everyone gets the same burial shrouds. We do not just put on extra clothing. So the children begged and they argued and they, they, you know, they really said, look at all the tzedakah that, that our father has given. And the Chavadisha said no. So the kids, the children were heartbroken that they could not carry out their father's request. There was another letter their father left them that he said is to be opened after Shiva, after they sat Shiva. So after Shiva, they opened the letter and it says, Undoubtedly, you asked the Chevrokadisha to bury me in my socks, and I know, of course, that they said no. It says, and don't feel bad, I knew they would say no, and I didn't care anyway. Why did I bring it up? Because I wanted to teach you a lesson. That Baruch Hashem, we had so much money, and when you leave the world, though, you can't even take a pair of socks with you. So that should be a lesson to you, that when you, what you take from this world is not your possessions. What you take from this world are the mitzvos and the good deeds and the Torah that you accumulated. In fact, the way they say it sometimes is, you, what you give is what you take, and what you take is what you give. In other words, think about it this way. All that I take from the world, when I die, I give it back. And all that I gave, my tzedakah and my mitzvahs, that's what I take in Olam to Olam So I take away what I give and what I took is what I give back. You see, I take what I give and I give what I took. And that's the perspective. So the whole thing was just to teach his children the idea that don't think the purpose of life is to take your wealth. The purpose of life is to give it to the causes that will sanctify God's name and help people and help Torah and the like, yeah. Uh, when somebody wants to have like, a proper Jewish burial, but then for whatever reason, their family and their family decides to cremate them, yeah. will that have an effect on the person because their decision to cremate well, well, let me put it this way. It's cer certainly Hashem does not hold it against him in any way, so he'll certainly have resurrection of the dead He'll have Olam Haba, but, but he's going to suffer some pain. In other words, not, not because God is punishing him, he's going to suffer pain over what has happened to him. So uh, it's not a good thing for him, but, but Hashem certainly will not hold it against him in any way, so he will not lose anything in um, Olam Haba. I also have a question about the case where it's a parent, it's like, oh my God, and they 
Yeah. Okay, so, so the answer is, is, is really relatively simple. There is a general halachic principle that honoring parents is always subordinate to the rules of honoring God because you and your parents have to honor God. So if your parent tells you, please go to the store and buy some pork, or they tell you on Shabbos, uh, cook something for me. Now, you have to be respectful. We don't mean you yell at them and say, oh, you know. Uh, but assuming you're respectful and everything else, you are not allowed to accede to their request, even though there's a mitzvah of honoring parents, because honoring parents can never permit you to violate anything else in the Torah. Because Chazal say, uh, you have to honor God, and God is someone your parents are supposed to honor also. Right? So therefore, the kibbutz of Yim does not come into this picture at all. In fact, there are a few areas, I'll just mention this as an aside, a few areas where you're not supposed to listen to your parents. Uh, one is marriage partners. This is an interesting point. You know, when people get engaged, obviously, all of us always want our parents' blessing, right? There's always a feeling, I want my parents to bless the shidduch. Now, that's a wonderful thing, and of course you try to do that. And uh, if your parents, let's, but let's say your parents don't like your, your choice. <laughs> they say, not a good guy, you know, he's a bum. Now, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying don't listen to them. I mean, they might be right. In other words, take what they say very, very seriously. But they can't pull out the keyboard of the aim trump card. They can't simply say to you, you got to listen to me because of the mitzvah of honoring parents. That's not true. Ultimately, you make your decision and you take your parents' words as words of wisdom and advice, which you take seriously, but they don't have a veto power over your marriage partner. Uh, they don't have a veto power of where you live if you want to move to Israel and your parents say no. Again, please understand me. I'm not saying disregard what they say pay very close attention to it, but they can't, they don't have a veto. They have a voice. Uh, they don't have a decision about what job you take. I Meaning, I mean, there's a lot of things that Kibbut Aviyam doesn't automatically encompass. You always have to be respectful. You always have to, uh, you know, you're not allowed to yell, scream, get angry. You know, you don't, you try not to do that. But ultimately, Halacha recognizes that adult children make, you know, make decisions. I mean, parents do not control uh, the decisions of life that you, that you make. Marriage, aliyah, and certainly when it violates the Torah, absolutely, uh, parents do not have any right to make such a, such a demand. Okay, so that's uh, some things to uh, be aware of in terms of kibbut of Um Okay. All right, so that was kind of just, I uh, just wanted to finish up that little aspect. We're talking about organ donation, and organ donation obviously involves uh, things like autopsy, so I just wanted to mention the idea of, of cremation. Yeah. Sorry, um, is it okay for, like, a Jew to cremate non-Jew? That, that's an interesting question, and that, that comes up a lot. Uh, cremation is one issue, yeah. and another issue is if you're a medical student, Right? So we mentioned autopsy, cutting into corpses is forbidden. What if it's a non-Jewish corpse, which in the United States it'll mainly be? So that's a big, big argument. Some say that the concept of not defacing bodies by either cremation or by cutting into them has nothing to do with being Jewish. It goes back to the fact that all human beings are made in the image of God. 
and therefore all human beings have to be treated with that type of respect and they would apply all of these halachos to non-Jewish bodies as well. Others uh, do say halachically uh, it would be okay. So, so it would be as, as, as often the case a machlokas, I think it's better to be strict and uh, do not do cremations even on, uh, even on non-Jews. Yeah. Are autopsies allowed if God forbid somebody's murdered and like the police need to know? Okay, so that's a very excellent question. Uh, autopsies are normally forbidden, but if they could save a life, you can do it. So one category of autopsy that halacha recognizes as potentially life-saving is what's called a forensic autopsy. That means an autopsy in order to apprehend or get evidence that could, could trace the murderer or whatever. We're not. Now, since murderers who kill once may kill again, that's treated as a life-threatening situation which would allow an autopsy. But even then, a rabbi should, who knows anatomy should sit down with the coroner and try to determine that it be as limited as is necessary. And after they run tests, you try to return the body parts to a grave to be buried with the rest of the body. So you try to, no, you don't just throw it in the garbage. What happens to the soul during the autopsy? Well, the soul, of course, is not destroyed, but the soul is feeling pain. In other words, it's like the soul feels every cut of the scalp. So it's a very, now this is a spiritual pain, this is not a physical pain. So an autopsy is a very, very painful experience for the neshama. The neshama sees its body being desecrated in that particular, particular way. Yeah. Um, sorry, back to the other question about yeah. the um, I know animals are obviously different, but does this extend to like animals? Like a lot of times people get like, their dogs cremated yeah, and like... that's perfectly fine. That's, that's fine. fine. That's fine, that's fine. But, Again, but yeah. those are also like creatures created by like, God. Well, 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 they're created, everything's created by God, but they're not in the image of God. Remember, I'm not, I'm not just saying you know, yeah. created okay. by God. Image of God is very, very different. So it's like humans um, or human beings have, uh, uh, have uh, the divine soul, etc. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, would you do now, now again, the Torah obviously prohibits causing pain to animals, of course. Yeah. Uh, animals uh, have to be treated with kindness, compassion. Uh, the Torah also prohibits, by the way, I think I may have mentioned this, spaying animals. This is an enormous problem. Uh, you know, uh, if any of you have dogs or cats, mm -hmm. I assume that uh, you, know, you normally get them spayed, be neutered, because otherwise you have very severe overpopulation problems as you have in Jerusalem with all of these cats all over the place. And yet, halakhically, there's a real, 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 real problem. And that is, the Torah prohibits the removal of reproductive organs. The Torah prohibits the neutering or spaying, not only of people, but that's actually an animal prohibition. And it's even under the Noahide law, so that's prohibited even for non-Jews. So, if you are buying a dog or a cat, I urge you to buy one that's already neutered or spayed, and that way it's not your problem, you're just doing something that already happened. Now, where this really is a problem is, uh, professionally, if any of you want to be veterinarians, you've got a little bit of a problem, because a veterinarian's bread and butter 
is neutering dogs and cats. I mean, that's, that's what pays your rent, basically. You know, operating on a lion is going to be a rare thing. You know, it's not going to happen that often. Uh, but the average uh, vet spends most of the time uh, neutering dogs and cats. And if uh, you're a religious Jew, I mean, the truth is, even a guy is not supposed to do it, but if you're a religious Jew who obeys halakha, uh, it's a big, big uh, problem. Uh, so, what's interesting is that the prohibition is only anatomical uh, castration or neutering, when you physically cut it off. But now they've developed ways through chemical injections uh, that just that just stops the blood flowing to the organs, etc. but there's no actual cutting. So that actually would be halakhically permitted. So there are newer ways of neutering that might be permitted halakhically. But that, that's a very big issue for uh, Jewish veterinarians to consider. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not trying to like stay on this like, topic, I guess, but yeah. um, like, would you be allowed to work in like a vet's office? Like if you're not the one snip, snipping? Okay, so no, no, it's a good, it's, it's a good point. You got, you got to pay attention. So, so it depends. You can certainly be a secretary. You can be a receptionist. So you like be trying to stop it. Well, you know, you have to, I mean, you have to be realistic. You know, you're gonna be, uh, you're gonna like, you know, uh, the dog is on the table and you're gonna jump on the dog. You know. What if, what if you've seen it? Like one time, I saw a rabbit get neutered. Yeah. What do you do? You stop like, do I walk out of the room? You don't have to walk out of the room. I mean, again, if you can't stop it, you just can't stop it. You know, it's not, uh, you know, I mean, there there are things that happen in the world that are not not right, but but we don't always have the power to to stop it. So Hashem will will do what Hashem will do. Uh, So I don't think, you know, you have to blame yourself for it. You 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 wouldn't have been able to stop it. I mean, listen. There are a lot worse things that happen. I mean, people are pulling the plug on human beings. Yeah. Uh, there are abortions or other things like that. I was about that. to say, what about a woman who has her ovaries removed? Yeah, like that happens a lot. Okay, so, so, this, so because, because of this, okay, so, so this is an excellent problem. Uh, when you have hysterectomies, removal of the womb, the uterus, or uh, the removal of ovaries, or both, uh, that is, now that is a violation of the laws of castration or neutering, but 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 those laws are can be violated if the woman is facing a threat to her life. So, if God forbid a woman has ovarian cancer or needs a hysterectomy because there's some health risk to her life, so yes, uh, you're allowed to have it. Not because it's not neutering or castration or not castration, that's not the right word, but whatever, sterilization. It is an act of sterilization, but uh, it's permitted for pikuach nevis. Now, where you get into an interesting question, and for women in particular, is prophylactic removals. You, you may know now, because of the, they, they've identified certain genes in a woman that create a, a high probability that later in life she may get different types of cancers. Now, they've identified primarily for breast, BRCA1, which is not, but theoretically they, have, they can have genetic markers for ovarian cancer and the like. So for breast cancer, for example, there are women that are getting mastectomies uh, you know, when they're perfectly healthy because they don't want to get cancer 20 years later. Now, the interesting question is, all right, so a mastectomy is not prohibited per se. Removal of breast tissue is not an Avera. 
But if a woman were to use this calculation, let's say she has a family where a lot of people get ovarian cancer. So a woman might say she wants prophylactically removal of ovaries or even the uterus uh, to avoid getting cancer later. That's a very interesting halachic shayla. Is that called a life-threatening situation that would allow for the removal of, of the ovaries? That's very, very far from pushing. Again, a mastectomy is not, although I'm, I'm against that too, but a mastectomy poses very lesser halachic problems because there's no direct prohibition in the Torah against removal of breast tissue. There is a direct prohibition in the Torah for removal of uh, ovaries and, and, and uterus, and it's only going to be mutar if it's pikuach nefesh, and a prophylactic fear that 20 years down the road there may be cancer may not halachically be a pikuach nefesh situation. Also, it's short-sighted because essentially the woman is destroying her reproductive capacity when there were still you know, many years when uh, there still could be children and the like. So it's not, it's not a wise, it's not, well, I'm not saying it's not wise, it depends on the situation, but in many cases it's just not a wise situation. Yeah, yeah. So that that's interesting. Uh, the question would be: Is there a prohibition of removal of ovaries or um, or uterus or both when there's no possibility of, of children anyway? It's postmenopause. It's a good question. It seems halachically there still is. It's, it's based on an anatomic thing. We, now, this has implications. This is why a vasectomy, which is a vasectomy is when a male kind of uh, is is prohibited according to halacha unless there's some cancer reason or the like, and this is why tubal ligation, tying the tubes, fallopian tubes, unless there's cancer. But as a birth as a contraceptive method, vasectomies and tubal ligations are generally not permitted. That is why. When we permit birth control, which we don't always, and I'll talk a little bit about it, I'm getting into a lot of different topics. Even if contraception is justified, I'll discuss in a moment when it would be, but the two methods that cannot be used as contraceptive devices are male vasectomies and female tubal ligation because they run afoul of the, of the sterilization laws. Okay? These apply to animals and people, right? So these are, are things to be aware of. Yeah. Um, I don't remember what it's called, but when you get your like, breast removed, yes. does that follow the same suit? Because not technically, I don't think, a reproductive organ. No, no, that, that's what like, I was saying. That, that's what I was that, saying. Like what I was saying about. that the removal of breast tissue does not involve uh, prohibitions. Okay. So I, I'm not in favor of it necessarily either, but, but it does not have the same problem. Okay. So if somebody so has if somebody has the BRCA BRCA gene, yeah. and uh, there's a high probability they will get breast cancer mm -hmm. down the road, so they want uh, removal of breast tissue prophylactically. Mm -hmm. uh, that is not a halachic iser, okay. as it would be if you'd remove ovaries and okay. Uh, okay. because this is only reproductive organs. So the breast is not a reproductive organ. Yeah, I'm sorry. Was there a question there? Should not? Yeah. Which surgery are you talking about? Even if it's... Uh, like as a oh, absolutely, there'll be some rabbis that will say not to. Uh, that, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying it's a great matter of controversy. And many would advise against it, for sure. 
first of all, it's always a problem because who knows what types of cures are going to be available in 20 years. You know, people are aborting now. They do genetic testing on fetuses and they discover uh, a latent gene for, let's say, Huntington's or a disease that will not be manifest for 20 or 30 years or longer. And they make abortion decisions based on a disease that's not even going to hit the child till the child is an adult. Uh, that's a pretty irresponsible decision, actually, uh, because number one, you're depriving someone of 40 years or more of productive life, and number two, you know how are you going to feel if 40 years later they have this cure, you know, that that totally uh, fixes the disease, you know? But people are making these decisions based on long term. So prophylactic surgery is a very controversial issue. You're going to do the surgery before there is a a disease, but with reproductive organs, it raises these, these halachic, halachic issues. Okay, so these are things to be aware of. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes, it, it, it might, it might, it might. But, it, but even then, even then, you try to keep it as narrowly targeted as you can, and you also want to ensure proper disposition of, of the body parts that were used in the testing. In other words, the one thing that you should never have, you should never have organs just thrown into the garbage, which they often, which they often are afterwards. Uh, even organs that are severed and removed should be then buried with the body. You know, you even reopen the grave. You know, put uh, put it in with the with the body and, and the leg. Where do you keep what? The organs? Are you talking about where do the uh, pathologists keep them? No, I mean, I mean, in other words, uh, I mean, when you do autopsies, you know, you're sitting at a, you're standing up at a table and you're cutting organs and the like. They're they're frozen for a while, and at some point they may be discarded. Oh, no, 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 okay, let me explain something. Okay, yeah, yeah, let me clarify this. Organs that are removed when you are alive do not have to be buried. Oh, okay. No, no, no. No, no, no. No, 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 no. Uh, you, don't have to, you don't have to keep your tonsils or your appendix. Or your, no, no. I'm talking about uh, organs once a body died and there's an autopsy after he's dead, those organs should be uh, buried. When, when, the, when the pathologist is finished with them. But the organs that are taken out of your body while you're alive, uh, they can be thrown away. Say again? And that's even true for a limb. It's even true for a limb. Um, some, some actually want to bury them, but, but according to the strict halacha, anything that is removed from you while you're still alive does not have a burial requirement. So that's why you don't have to worry about uh, fingers, limbs, teeth, and a lot, a lot of things, you know. Uh, even people who don't have, I mean, I, you know, many people have had teeth pulled or, you know, or kids normally, kids lose, lose their first teeth, right? You don't have to keep those teeth around and, uh, for eventual burial or whatever, whatever it is. Right? Your fingernails, your hair, obviously, uh, there's all sorts of stuff you don't have to worry about. Uh, okay, so uh, we kind of just circled a lot of different things, which is fine, I don't mind that. Um, so again, since I mentioned uh, not 
having vasectomies and not having uh, tubal ligation, let me talk about contraception generally, mm -hmm. since uh, we touched upon that by definition. Yeah. It does not involve the removal of an organ, but it involves the cutting, the severing of it, meaning the fallopian tubes are cut in such a way that uh, the egg cannot go from the ovary down to the uterus and, and get fertilized. So that's included. In other words, the issue of removing includes cutting and snipping so that the organ is not uh, able to anatomically function. Uh, now, it, it doesn't apply to chemical things. So if you were able to take a permanent, like, you know, a birth control pill that stops ovulation, that, that's not an anatomical change in the organ. Because it's not permanent itself. or no? Huh? Is it because it's not permanent? Well, well uh, one, number one, it's not permanent, that's for sure. But number two, even if it would be permanent, uh, it would be similar to chemical sterilization, which would be permitted. So those injections are okay? Say again, I didn't hear you. Well, you know, it all depends, you know, obviously it depends on uh, the condition, number one. Uh, if it is a serious condition, then she should take the more effective drug, even if it has the side effect of uh, not allowing her to have children. If, on the other hand, in other words, the less serious the condition, the less justification there is to take away her fertility. Uh, the more serious the condition, the more justification. Now, that's one thing. The other thing we have to look at is comp comparative effectiveness. If the difference between the two drugs is very small, like one you know, is 90% effective and the other is 89% effective, then for 1%, it's worthwhile not to, on the other end, if, if there's a big, big difference and a very serious condition, we would always say go with the better, go with the better drug. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to you about that when I get into contraception generally, but, but certainly halacha recognizes that psychiatric conditions, mental health, can create uh, life-threatening situations as powerful, if not more so, than physical situations. So we recognize a whole range of mental conditions can be life-threatening. Uh, suicide, uh, violence to yourself or to others. Uh, so halacha recognizes that. We do not disparage the reality of mental health, the idea that it's all in your head <laughs> is, uh, you know, we, we don't accept that. We recognize that uh, there can be very, very severe consequences uh, in, that, in that way. So again, let me just mention contraception generally. In other words, uh, we have on one hand the specific prohibitions of sterilization, which we talked about. Uh, but let's assume you're not doing sterilization, you're not doing vasectomies, you're not doing um, uh, a type of male castration or whatever it will be, uh, you're simply taking a pill that may inhibit ovulation or you might be using a diaphragm or some type of blockage and the like. So does halacha permit contraception 
or does halacha say uh, you got to have as many kids as you can have, no matter what, as long as you can have them? So here it's a little tricky. You already know, and we talked about this, that there is a mitzvah in the Torah to have children. So we start off with the idea, mitzvah to have children. But at the same time, that mitzvah is fulfilled when you have a son and a daughter. Right? That's the basic mitzvah. And afterwards, it's considered to be a meritorious thing, but it's not in the nature of an absolute obligation. So as a result, uh, you know, different rabbis will have different sensitivity gauges here. But certainly, halacha will take into account stress, it will take into account tension, it will take into account how well are the other kids being taken care of, it will take into account spacing between children, now I say, I'm, I'm being very vague here, when I say take into account, I'm not saying necessarily that a rabbi will poskin that it's allowed, but these are factors uh, that will be weighed. In other words, there is a calculus and a discussion here. Now obviously, the first preference is to find the resources that you need. You know, well, whether it's ba babysitters, whether it's family, whether it's organizations that can help instead of just saying oh it's too hard you know we try to work it but but halacha does have a certain liberality especially once you have the basic son and daughter right so I'm not getting into more specific than that uh, but um, be aware that halacha differentiates between contraception and abortion abortion extremely strict the mother's life has to be in danger. Although we do regard psychological factors as potentially dangerous. Contraception, we're no longer dealing with mother's life in danger. Obviously, if the mother's life is in danger, we would allow contraception. But we can consider other stress-related factors in a much more lenient way. So. These are two different halachic areas. Contraception and abortion are not analogous. They are treated in very, very different, different ways because in contraception you don't yet have a child, so to speak, uh, that you're terminating, that, 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 you, that you, are, you are destroying. Now, even in contraception, there are some limitations. Number one, the first one we already discussed, vasectomies, tubal ligation, are no good. Uh, there's another issue, too, and that is condoms are generally not a, not a halakhically permissible method of birth control. And the reason for that is the Torah's prohibition against male masturbation. Again, forgive me for being a little explicit, uh, but for halakha I need to you know, use all these terms. Uh, the Torah prohibits what is called the wasting of seed, the spilling of seed. And since in the case of a condom, the male sperm does not enter uh, the body of his spouse, that is treated halakhically as masturbation. So as a result, therefore, a condom is not a permissible uh, device. On the other hand, something like a diaphragm would be, because although the diaphragm may block the sperm from uh, reaching the egg, but the sperm does enter the woman's body and therefore that is treated as intercourse rather than masturbation. So um, 
These may be subtle differences and maybe they don't uh, fully make sense to you, but, uh, but nevertheless, uh, these are important differences. So we have two types of birth control that are going to be halakhically problematical. Uh, type one is the sterilization issue, and type two is the masturbation issue. Uh, other than that, the contraceptive methods are permitted, but only if there is a need. Now the need could be, it doesn't have to be a life-threatening need. But if it's just convenience or whatever it is, you know, we, we, you know, we're not in favor of that. Hashem said married people should have children, create families. So just because it's, you know, I have more fun without kids, uh, that's not a legitimate reason. But when there's real stress and real tension and anxiety and, and psychological pain, that would be a, a permissible factor to consider. Yeah. Can we yeah. Yeah, so, so this is actually actually very, very interesting. Um, halacha does not really go with the idea that the fetus has its own autonomous soul. Now, it's true that, in fact, the very beginning of the Tanya quotes uh, the Gemara that says that an angel is teaching the unborn fetus the Torah and makes the, makes the neshama swear that it will be righteous, etc., uh, but we regard the soul of the fetus as really an extension of the mother's soul. So it is not a separate life until it is born. And that is why abortion is not the same as murder. But abortion is at least quasi-murder because once there is a fetus, it is treated as a potentiality of life. And as a potentiality of life, it should not be terminated unless the mother's life is in danger. Now again, as I said, the mother's life in danger does include psychiatric stress. For example, this is how Allah would analyze rape or incest. You often hear people in the States, uh, pro-lifers, who might say, I am against abortion except in case of rape or incest. Right? That's a, commonly somebody will, some politician will say that, at least on the Republican side. I'm against abortion unless rape or incest. Now, if you think about that, if you're a real pro-lifer, that argument makes no sense at all. Because if you treat abortion as murder, then what are you saying? I'm in favor of killing a baby if the baby was conceived by rape or incest? I mean, let's say the baby would be born. You say, that baby was born from rape, too much of a stress, let's kill him. No, I mean, no reasonable person would say that. So how can a pro-lifer justify abortion? If a pro-lifer believes that human life begins at conception, which is what a pro-lifer believes, then how can you justify, how can you create a rape or incest exception? Now how does Halacha analyze it? Halacha says the following. There is no such thing as a rape or incest exception. We only allow abortion if the mother's life is in danger. That's our rule. Now, in assessing whether the mother's life is in danger, 
one of the things we consider is the trauma that was occasioned by the circumstances in which the baby was conceived. So there's no such thing as a rape or incest exception, but if a child was conceived by rape or incest, it may be such a trauma to the woman that perhaps, not in every case, but perhaps it may be a life-threatening thing. Now, you can't do that once the baby is born because you can't murder one person to save another person. But as I say, abortion is not murder. Uh, abortion is a great sin because of the potential life, but it yields to the mother's life, and therefore rape or incest cases may be pikuach nefesh. You see the difference here. It's not an automatic thing, rape or incest, abortion is okay. It's a question of whether the mother's life is threatened. I mean, you know, you hear nightmare stories, uh, I mean, what people do, it's just un un unbelievable. Uh, there was a, woman, a young woman in Austria who was a prisoner by her father. I mean, her mother was upstairs for, for 25 years. She was a prisoner. Uh, her father kept her a prisoner in the basement for like 20 years. 20 years. Mother says she didn't even know anything about it. Uh, she thought her daughter left home. And uh, this girl was locked up, and her father would come in and rape her repeatedly. And she had, I think it was four children, five children, from her father that she raised. She raised, no abortions. She raised, and whatever it would be, and they, they finally got freed, freed out of there. I mean, there's any depth of Gehenim that, uh, you know, I think he'll go as deep as, as Gehenim reaches. Uh, but uh, she raised, uh, I mean, I mean, it happened to be Mamzer, but that's the least of the problem here. Uh, she raised five, uh, normal children. Jewish people. No, 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 not, not, not Jewish. Hashem, no, not, not, not Jewish. But, yeah, and then, you know, the guy would come down to the basement and then he would you know, go upstairs be with his wife, you know, in regular, you know. And the wife would ask, you know, how... Mom didn't know there were five She days. says she didn't know anything. She didn't know, what do people not know? to him, she was probably not. You know. Okay, so so one could easily imagine. Now, now thank God that that wasn't her case. She she was strong enough to, to bear this, but one could imagine that these types of things are suicidal. So the point I'm making is, halacha does not have a rape or incest exception. Halacha has a pikuach nefesh exception, and rape or incest will be relevant factors on that particular scenario. In other words, but different women will be different. In other words, once you say that, some women it's not pikuach nefesh, and some women it is pikuach nefesh. They tell the story, it may, it may, be, a, may be a false story, I don't know, it may be apocryphal, I'm not sure, that uh, a religious woman, a religious single woman, was raped by uh, a black person. There's a reason why I'm saying he's a black person. And uh, she got pregnant and she was carrying twins. And she gave birth to two uh, black uh, kids, two black boys. And uh, one could imagine that you know, she was a very religious woman, that she was totally distraught. You know, she wanted to, well, while, while she was pregnant, there was an ultrasound or whatever it is, so she wanted an abortion. She said she can't live this way, she's gonna commit suicide. Uh, she wants an abortion. So. She, uh, her parents uh, sent her to Rav Moshe Feinstein to have a discussion. 
And Rav Feinstein spoke to her for many, many hours. And Rabbi Feinstein told her something that, you know, this may shock you. He told her, you know, if you need this because you really feel your life is in danger, then of course you can have it. But he said, you know that you are carrying Jewish children because you're a Jewish woman. And these children are going to be Jewish. And you know that they could still be tzaddikim and they could be righteous people and holy people. And you can have the merit of taking this awful experience and elevating it, consecrating it, dedicating it to Hashem. And he actually talked her out of it. And the story goes, as a single mother, I, I don't know if she ever got married, as a single mother, she raised these kids. And the story goes, now again, this may be a story, a story. they became Tomidei Chachamim, they both became rabbis. So why did Hashem bring those souls into the world that way? I'll leave it for your Hasidic classes to, to discuss. It's a great, great, great mystery. But we know from Kabbalah that sometimes the greatest holiness comes into the world through the most awful, awful means. So I, I do want to emphasize, if it's a real pikuach nefesh, we do abort. You know, we don't force a woman. But if she could understand and accept and, 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 and work with the difficult task that Hashem has given her, then it can, be, can become, even something so tragic and so awful, can become a source of holiness, even then. Yeah, but I, you, know, you, may, again, you may hate this story and not <laughs> you have to cogitate over it, but uh, that, that's what the story shows. Yeah. But, um, so I'm just wondering, like, I've seen on like, the internet and just in general, like, two different things, like ads for, like, pay, that would pay women for, like, if I donated my eggs as a Okay, that, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> I, can't, then, I can't talk about every single topic. Yeah, I, no, I'll, I'll get to it. I will get to it. And then, like, like you, like the whole spilling seed thing. Yeah. Um, how men can like donate their sperm? They need yep, to. Yep. Yep. Excellent. Excellent, excellent yeah. question. Again, I'm going to talk about all of these things because yeah. uh, you know we, but you know, but you understand that that's yeah. that's an opposite topic. Meaning, we were talking about contraception. You're talking about fertility technologies okay. to have children. Yeah. But you're you're correct. It does overlap. For men to be sperm donors. Yeah. obviously raises, raises an issue of masturbation. We'll talk about it. And not only for men to be sperm donors, but even for husbands. Uh, when you do an in vitro fertilization procedure, yeah. let's say it's regular husband, husband and wife. Uh, you know, in vitro, right? So that means the man has to emit the sperm through masturbation. But that's very different. You see, that's masturbation for the purpose of producing a child. That's very different than a condom, which is a masturbation yeah. to prevent Right, so there, there is a difference even within masturbation between masturbation as a fertility mechanism and masturbation as an avoidance of fertility mechanism. But, but we, I, I, I assure you, we will talk about this in detail. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's something like cosmetic treatment of acetone where you go on this drug Well, let me put it this way. I mean, uh, if you're dealing with uh, a temporary thing, meaning you're going to take it for six months, and for those six months you have to be on contraception, 
So uh, if, this is for acne, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so if, if the, the acne is, is embarrassing or whatever it would be, I think halach, I think we would be pretty lenient. I mean, but if it would have to be a permanent condition that would destroy uh, fertility for good, uh, then I think we would say, you know, bring and bear the acne. But I, I think if you're talking about a limited treatment, that would be a very good header for birth control during that time. Yeah. Uh, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I mean, what? In other words, she, I, I'm not sure I understand the question. Meaning, her parents, her parents wanted to talk to her about Feinstein. They didn't tell her what yeah. to do. But a little Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. The decision to have a child or not have a child based on fear of threat to your life is not affected by your parents' opinion one way or the other. And like everything else, uh, depending on your relationship to your parents, you pay attention to what they say and you certainly factor it in, but there's no veto of honoring parents to put your life in danger. Uh, so that would not be a keep it of the aim situation. Yeah. Um, and by the way, the same thing is the opposite. You know, it's often the case in, in the, I'm sorry, I'll get to say, it's often the case with people who are ballet chuva, people who are uh, religious and they have big families that they're, they're, they're non-religious families, like their mother, their father may say, why are you having so many kids? <laughs> they don't have the right, uh, they really don't have the right to tell you. In other words, uh, if your parents tell you stop having kids, that's not uh, anything you have to listen to them for. Again, pay attention to what they say, but it's not keep it up again. I think even Donald Trump said something about one of his uh, sons. And why is he having so many kids? But okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you are carrying multiples and you need to have selective protection done, either for the children or for your own life, is there any idea on you just have to do it completely randomly? Or yeah, yeah, so this is, this is, yeah, this is a very interesting question. Mult, this is called M, not NPR, MPR. MPR stands for multi-fetal pregnancy reduction, which is a fancy word for what is called selective abortion. And this is a consequence usually of fertility drugs. And a woman's not having children, she takes various fertility drugs, <coughs> And as a result, she may be carrying, I'm just repeating your question, she may be carrying multiple births, uh, not just twins, triplets, but sometimes uh, quads and quints and sex. And you even have uh, the famous Octomom. Actually, Octomom, all eight were born healthy, and I guess they're still doing, doing okay. Uh, but often, obviously, the, the more you're carrying, the more health risks there are, both to you, the woman, and, of course, to the uh, fetuses themselves, uh, which can suffer either death or severe mental or physical disabilities. So the question would be, would halacha permit, this is not total abortion, would halacha permit selective abortion? And if it does permit selective abortion, how is the decision made? As let's say a doctor says, uh, you can carry two out of the six safely. 
but we have to abort four. So which four do you, you know, do you choose? So this is a very complicated question. I mean, the answer is a simple answer, but, but how you apply it is enormously complicated. Number one, halacha does recognize that selective abortion may be necessary either to save the life of the mother or to save the life of the other babies. And halacha would then say, you make a determination by choosing the healthiest to live, meaning you make a judgment who is doing the best. So it's not doesn't have to be a random. Now, if indeed all are equal, then you might do something like a lottery or, or, or whatever. But, but if there's kind of a judgment that uh, four are mo more likely to thrive and the other two are going to die if I abort the four or whatever it would be, I can make that type of type of decision. Now the reason why I say this is enormously complicated to apply is for the following reason. If a doctor tells you the following, you're carrying six, and I can tell you that for sure six will die unless we abort four, so that's a simple case. He's telling you six are going to die unless we abort four, so we can abort four. But a doctor's never going to tell you that. A doctor's going to give you probabilities. A doctor's going to give you numbers. A doctor's going to say, well, if we don't do any abortion, there's a 35% chance that this will happen. Right? But it could be that all six may survive. Right? So the question becomes, what type of percentage is going to allow you to kind of do this selective abortion? Because you're not going to get a case. No, no doctor's ever going to say, for sure, they're all going to die or whatever, whatever it would be. So it's very difficult uh, to, to, to apply, but, but halacha does recognize selective abortion. Now, where it gets much more difficult, again, these topics are so interrelated, is not when you're dealing with selective abortion, but when you're dealing with kids who are already born and they're conjoined twins. Now, it's the same type of problem, but it's much more difficult because they're born already. And that is, well, they used to be called Siamese twins in the, the non-politically correct days. Now, they, now they're called conjoined uh, twins. They were called Siamese twins because the first uh, that survived till adulthood were two people from Thailand that used to be called Siam. Uh, and they made a career. They made a career of it. And now there are two sisters. There must be more than that, but I know there are two sisters mm -hmm. in Wisconsin who uh, they even have separate drivers? Li it just—it's it's hard to imagine. But you know, they—you uh, know—they—they—they've been together literally all of their lives, and you know, they do different things. By the way, the Siamese twins actually got married. They got married. Each one had a separate had a separate wife. It's, okay, it's, the, the world has very strange things uh, <laughs> in, in, in it. But okay. Uh, but be it as it may, the conjoined twins dilemma is very similar to the multi-fetal pregnancy reduction in the sense of the following. In the multi-fetal pregnancy reduction, the doctor will tell you, if we don't do an abortion on some of them, all of them might die. Therefore, we have to selectively abort. Now, I told you halacha does permit selective pregnancy termination if the mother's life is at risk or even if the other fetus's life is at risk. Now, conjoined twins, they're already born. And typically, a typical scenario would be there's only one heart that's feeding two bodies. But the heart is not strong enough to keep two bodies alive. 
So what the parents are going to be told is the following. If we don't separate these kids, they're both going to die in a day. If we separate and kind of allocate the heart to one, then one is going to be killed immediately by being separated from the heart. The other one has a chance of living. So, and this is much different than the multifetal pregnancy reduction because in the multifetal pregnancy reduction, they haven't been born yet. So it's abortion, which halacha does not classify as murder. But here, you're actually killing you, meaning the surgeon. The surgeon is killing. But you're not, because a heart is what makes a person alive. It doesn't have a heart. But he, but he does have a heart. You're, you've separated him from the heart. The, the heart is, 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 is circulating, pumping blood in both bodies. Isn't it that the doctors will know which one actually will be the only one you can save? Well, that's going to be the... What? Isn't there like a test to see which one has the most ability? Well, yeah, but the, qu the, but the question is whether how logically this works, meaning if the heart is circulating blood in two bodies, and but it now by... one of them, though. Huh? Which body is the heart in? Okay, okay so that, that's the question. In other words, uh, so, so, so some postkin will say... That the heart belongs, the heart belongs to the baby in whose body it is more physically located. That's kind of a physical idea. Huh? That's correct. That's correct. That's not always going to work. Remember, these are newborn babies, so you know this kind of the heart might literally be. It may not be so obvious. It belongs to somebody. Isn't this like that train example? It is. It is. It is. This is an example of the trolley. The trolley case comes up again, huh? Does that not? Does that the trolley example not apply to unborn children? Why treat potential It's a very. It's a very good question. But the it's a very good question. But the reason why it does not apply to unborn children is because they're not born. Meaning to say, if abortion is not murder, it's only potential, we are allowed to deal with increasing potential. In other words, the law that you can't kill one to save many or to save another, that applies to born lives. Right? So it's a very good point. So that's why multi-fetal pregnancy reduction is not as halakhically difficult as conjoined mm -hmm. twins. Again, th this is a huge topic. I'm going I'm to save this for, 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 for next week. Uh, but uh, just be aware that it, it, it is a similar problem <coughs> to pregnancy reduction, but it's a much more difficult problem. Now, it's interesting that in the 1970s, there was a religious couple in Lakewood, uh, an Orthodox Jewish couple in Lakewood, that had conjoined twins. And the uh, surgeon who was uh, willing to operate on the twins to separate them was a person who later became famous in the U.S. government. He was C. Everett Koop, K-O-O-P. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He became, uh, in the presidency of Ronald Reagan, he became the Surgeon General of the United States. Surgeon General is not a surgeon, really. he, he happened to be a surgeon, but he's the Chief Public Health Officer of the United States. Famous guy, but he was a famous thoracic surgeon. Uh, cardiac and chest surgeon who was able to do these operations. And he was a religious uh, Christian, a very religious Christian. Uh, but the family said that we cannot do this operation unless we check with a great rabbi. Our great rabbi, is this going to be permitted? Because essentially, you're going to immediately kill one baby by separating. 
So are we allowed to kill one in order to save the other one? So as you would guess, the rabbi that he turned to was Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who got all of these difficult questions. And what's so interesting is that Rabbi Feinstein did not write a responsum on this. We only know this from the newspaper stories, the Philadelphia, what's the baby, Philadelphia Inquirer. <laughs> Meaning to say, it was a non-Jewish reporter, a woman who kind of wrote a long newspaper article about the ethical dilemma. So it's very kind of frustrating in a way because although she, she wrote it, I mean, for someone who didn't know halacha and wasn't even Jewish, she did a very, very excellent job, really a very excellent job in trying to understand the issues, but you know, we're not sure how accurate she totally was. Uh, but she basically tells us that Rabbi Feinstein said that since if you don't do anything, both are going to die, you are permitted to save one, even if that results in the death of the other. It is the trolley case. So we'll talk next week why, why, why it would be different. And uh, therefore, they did the operation, and it was successful, and the baby who was given the heart survived. But then, only a day or two later, the baby caught an infection, and the baby did die. So it wound up that both children uh, did die, uh, but at least in theory, this operation would have been permitted. Uh, the question we'll discuss <laughs> next week is, aren't we back to the same problem? Let's go back to the paradigmatic case. The non-Jews, Jewish army surrounds the city. And they say, give us a Jew that we will kill, or we will wipe out the whole city. So the halacha says, we must let the whole city die and not get involved in killing one person because we don't have the right to condemn one person to die even if that means many people will die at the hands of the enemy. Right? That's the idea that who says your blood is any better than their blood. So here we have a situation that doesn't involve a whole city but it's basically saying choose who should get the heart. Choose who should live. Because if you don't choose, they're both going to die. Well, are we allowed to make a choice that one person should live if that's going to be at the expense of the other person dying? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, again, again, I mean, the, pro the problem is that there may be special rules for uh, soldiers because soldiers have a job to risk their lives to save other people. That wouldn't be true for the babies. Yeah, I'll discuss this next week because, again, you see there's all sorts of problems here. But I just want you to understand that uh, pregnancy reduction, selective abortion, does not raise the same difficulty as separating conjoined twins. Because halakha does differentiate between born, born people and unborn people. That although abortion is a sin, it is not treated as murder, and therefore the rule that you can't murder somebody to save other lives wouldn't apply, and you are allowed to maximize survival. 
But once you get to born lives, you know, you can't make a judgment to kill one person to maximize the survival of others, so you're going to have a problem, yeah. Um, so going back to when abortion is permitted, yeah. um, it's saying if it's at a risk to the mother's mental or physical survival, right? Yes. So could, does the same ever apply That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very, very uh, interesting uh, question. Uh, I would say yes, because after all, the rule that abortion can be set aside when it threatens an existing life is not a principle that only applies to the, to the woman. Uh, theoretically, if anyone is endangered by the birth of this baby, but as I say, uh, that's a much less common scenario, but theoretically uh, it would apply to the father as well. Okay, all be well and uh, take care. Thank you.